Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson, and my co-host Jordan Rubin is out today, but we didn't want to leave you hanging. So today we're going to bring you a live discussion that I did earlier today on Twitter Spaces. I was joined by reporter and columnist Lydia Wheeler, my colleague here at Bloomberg Law, and by Jonathan Adler, a law professor at Case Western Reserve University and a familiar voice to regular listeners. We talked about this week's arguments in a Trump-era immigration policy and the Biden administration's unsuccessful attempts to undo it. And we also chatted about the court's send-off for Justice Breyer, who's stepping down this summer after more than 28 years on the bench. Hope you enjoy it. So uh, we, we're going to try to tra- talk a little bit later about Justice Breyer's last oral arguments after 28 years on the Supreme Court bench. And if we have time to get to maybe some tea leaves again about the big Mississippi abortion case that we're still waiting on from the justices. But first, we wanted to chat about an immigration argument that the justices just heard this week over a Trump-era policy known as the Remain in Mexico policy uh, and the Biden administration's so far unsuccessful attempts to unwind that policy. And uh, we're joined by Case Western Reserve Law Professor Jonathan Adler, who specializes in environmental, administrative, and constitutional law. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, Happy to be here. So uh, maybe you could lay out for listeners, you know, I mentioned that this is an immigration case and immigration law can just be so dense and complex. And even in the oral arguments for this case, it was like alphabet and number soup we're talking about. I'm I'm not even going to attempt to talk about all the different um, sub paragraphs. Um, But I guess I was hoping that we could start out by laying out for our listeners really what the problem is here that the Supreme Court and the president are trying to tackle. And I'm thinking, really, what is it, you know, that Congress has told the president that it has to do whenever it encounters non-citizens who are seeking to enter the U.S.? And if you could talk a little bit about the mismatch between the funds that would be required to do what Congress is telling the president to do and really what Congress has given the president uh, to tackle this problem. Sure, no, I'll, I'll, I'll try and, and, and lay that out. And I should just note, as an initial matter, um, this case is very messy. It was clear at oral argument. It's very messy. There were even questions about, you know, what's really even before the court and what arguments were preserved. And and um, uh, so it's a very messy case. But but the, the basic uh, background is, is that um, a federal immigration law uh, enacted by Congress uh, says that as a general matter, uh, people um, are supposed to be detained pending um, hearings to determine whether or not they are in fact ad- admissible. And yet, but that folks can be released um, uh, for if there is public benefit to, for doing so or, or for humanitarian reasons. And um, the language is written in a way to suggest that the kind of the default is detaining, but there is an exception to allow folks to be released if there are good reasons to do so. Um, but as you noted, Congress has never appropriated the amount of money that would be necessary to really be detaining the number of people that this anticip- that, that that this language would seem to anticipate uh, detaining. And the way that Trump administration dealt with that was to say, well, there's this other provision that says when people uh, come in are coming into the country from 
uh, a from Mexico or Canada, basically a country that we have a, a, a contiguous land border with, um, you can return them to that country um, to await their proceeding uh, outside of the U.S. In, in, in Canada or Mexico, which is why the, the policy was called remain uh, in Mexico. And um, the Trump administration's argument was, well, since we are allowed to do this and this will dramatically reduce the number of people we have to release, um, because it will it will reduce um, the number of people we have to detain. Um, this is something we should do. And the Trump so that was the Trump administration policy. And the Biden administration this was a controversial policy. The Biden administration did not like this policy, and the Biden administration sought to rescind this policy. Um, and it kind of sought to rescind it twice. And so there's this procedural question that has echoes of what we saw in the DACA case of whether or not we're focused on the first memorandum or the second memorandum um, and whether the Biden administration gave good, good enough reasons to rescind the policy, but also whether or not they are allowed uh, to rescind the policy. Uh, and so that's kind of a very general level kind of what's at issue, but there, there are a wide range of provisions in, in the federal, federal immigration law that could be relevant um, that, that identify and allocate um, different sorts of authority to, um, uh, to, to release people. And then there's also this background idea that this is an area where traditionally the executive branch has had a lot of discretion um, and a lot of discretion to make what are in effect enforcement decisions about how aggressively to enforce immigration law. And so that mix of questions is what the justices were struggling with. Yeah, Jonathan, um, you you know you mentioned about the funding part of this. You know that Congress never gave the federal government really enough money um, to detain the number of people that are affected here, right? I mean, I think I read yes. in this case that the government processed some what six hundred and seventy thousand migrants last year, but really only had the capacity to detain thirty four thousand. Um, and so I was curious if was this a concern for the justices? Um, it seemed like Chief Justice John Roberts brought this up during arguments, and and I'm curious what you think is will this lack of funding sink this for the Biden administration? Well, I mean, you know, it, this issue came up in in a bunch of context, a bunch of times during the argument, and in a bunch of contexts. Um, uh, the Chief Justice, for example, at one point asked um, uh, the Texas Solicitor General pretty point blank, you know, what do you gain from if 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 you win? Um, because not every there are still there's not enough there are not enough resources to detain everybody, um, and and we have to remember, you know, not everyone's coming in um, uh, in a way that would be affected by this policy. Uh, it was noted at argument that um, at some points we're talking about over two hundred thousand people a month. Um, uh, uh, who are entering, and, and the Texas response is, well, there'd be more compliance with this requirement to detain, and and on the margin that would be better. And you know, Texas's view is that would, I guess, mean fewer fewer um, non-citizens in Texas that Texas uh, believes it would have to deal with. Um, uh, but at other times, this issue came up where justices seem to suggest, well, you know, if Congress isn't providing the resources. Um, does that indicate Congress's acquiescence? Um, uh, Justice Sotomayor pushed this point. Um, I, I'm I'm suspicious that that the argument put in in those terms um, will sway too many of the conservative justices. But I think um, the Chief Justice, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett certainly saw this this tension about um, you know how could we in, require 
the Biden administration to adopt this policy if it doesn't actually result in full compliance with this detention obligation because you know the resources simply aren't there. And I should note the Biden administration's position is that they are engaged in the sort of case by case determination that um, uh, th that they need to be engaged in to release people or to parole people uh, from detention. And Justice Kavanaugh raised this issue uh, multiple times about, you know, is it really the court's place to be second guessing that, um, you know, isn't, couldn't the Biden administration be saying that one, one way to, to, to determine there are significant public benefit is to make sure that detention capacity is reserved for people that are dangerous, people that for which there really is a, a pressing need to detain them mm -hmm. and, um, you know, engaging in that sort of triage. Why couldn't that, be in administrative law, what we say under State Farm, why wouldn't that be a, 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 a reasonable way of exercising that authority? And, um, you know, the, you know, for so these three justices in the middle, these questions, I think, it, it struck me that they were difficult, that they that that those justices were sympathetic with Texas's legal argument in terms of what the law says, um, but were concerned about um, the practical implications and whether or not they would be in effect tying the hands of the executive branch too tightly in an area that that there has always been a fair amount of discretion. Right. I think one thing that was really interesting was this interaction that Justice Kagan had with the Texas Solicitor General about kind of the practical implications of requiring the Biden administration to keep this policy. And she was thinking about kind of the national security implications of requiring the executive to really have to negotiate with Mexico and kind of the uneven uh, negotiation stance that the Supreme Court telling the Biden administration you have to do this would create, um, you know, whenever the United States is trying to negotiate with Mexico over this policy. Um, and she she seemed a little uh, exacerbated by some of the, the answers by the Texas Solicitor General. Oh, yes, definitely. And, and, and the Texas Solicitor General was was forced, in effect, to backtrack and say, well, all the then all the Biden administration would really be required to do is to make a good faith effort to negotiate with Mexico to ensure um, uh, that folks can remain in Mexico, which, you know, underlined the question that the Chief Justice had asked about, you know, what's the practical effect, um, you know, if, of, of winning if it doesn't result in um, uh, a dramatic increase in the number of people that are detained or a dramatic reduction in the number of people that are or released or paroled in the United States. And, um, you know, Kagan's questions really hammered that home because, you know, she pointed out that that it would be quite odd for the court to require the U.S. government to do something that requires the cooperation of a foreign government uh, to be able to implement. And and that's certainly you know, that that would be a very aggressive posture for the Supreme Court uh, to take. So I, I feel like immigration law isn't complicated enough. I really wanted to bring in an element of administrative law, which might be the only area that's more complicated or as complicated, um, you know, a little light fare for Friday morning. Um, but I wanted to talk, you know, there's this separate aspect 
about the Biden administration's attempts to, you know, unwind this policy. And they say they have a lot of discretion when it comes to immigration and national security, national international relations. Um, but there's a separate piece of the case that talks about kind of what administrations must do whenever they want to unwind, uh, you know, a previous administration's um, policy preferences. And it, I, I think it goes back to a case not too long ago about um, some immigration relief for DREAMers under a program yep. called DACA. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? I know you thought that the Supreme Court had, had got it wrong in that case. And so I wonder if you think um, this is kind of showing that a little bit, this case here. Well, potentially. I mean, I do think that that immigration is an area where the arguments for executive branch discretion, I think, are, are higher than in a lot of kind of purely domestic contexts because of the, the connections to, to foreign affairs. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of moving parts in the DACA case, but two issues that were that were where the Trump administration kind of got hung up on in that case. One was um, the Supreme Court said that the Trump administration had not adequately accounted for the reliance interests that dreamers had, you know, people that were told that they would be allowed to stay in the country and be allowed to work, um, to suddenly put them at risk of deportation um, without, you know, accounting for the fact that these are people that have been here in many, you know, for decades and had built lives and families and careers and so on, and to suddenly say that's all at risk is is a, is a big deal, and and that reasoned decision making would require uh, accounting for those reliance interests, and then secondly. Um, you know, in the course of litigation, um, the Trump administration kind of issued a second explanation for the policy that was a little more complete. And there was a question of whether the court could consider that second implicate that second explanation under what we often call the, the Chenery Doctrine, this idea that you evaluate a agency's action based on the rationale when that they gave when they took the action. Um, on that latter point, the Biden administration seems to have learned that lesson. And so there was an initial memo that was somewhat sparse. Um, the Biden administration did a second memo here to rescind MPP, but unlike the Trump administration, did not offer this second memo as a um, fuller explanation, but at, but rather as a new decision. You know, we we are we aren't merely adding an explanation. We are actually redoing the decision. Um, and, and with a new explanation. And you know, I think that accounts for or, or addresses the concern from the DACA decision um, because they're not repeating the mistake the Trump administration had made. There is an issue in this case about whether that moots the lower court decisions that were really focused on the prior, on the, the initial memo as opposed to the second one, um, which the, there was not a lot of discussion about at oral argument, but but is an issue in the case. So there, at least, it seems the Biden administration learned the lesson of of the the DACA case, um, and so maybe it just requires this added formality. There was this other wrinkle that, again, didn't get a lot of attention at oral argument, but um, uh, the Trump administration, arguably as a way of kind of trying to cement its policy, um, entered into an agreement with Texas. Um, uh, basically promising not to rescind the policy without a certain degree of notice and without consulting with Texas and so on. And, and you know, it certainly looked like the Trump administration was trying to create the sort of reliance interests that uh, in this policy that were so important in DACA. Um, and, you know, that 
you know, kind of would suggest, at least to me, that how the DACA decision could could create problems for future administrations in terms of having flexibility. Um, uh, it didn't get a lot of a discussion at oral argument, but I think it does highlight it. I think there's, a, though, as you noted, a bigger question in the background, which I think the court is is wrestling with, right? On the one hand, the court, this is a court that wants to be consistent, I think, or wants to try to be consistent um, with its prior decisions. But on the other hand, I there were multiple points at oral argument where were I felt some of the justices were concerned about getting too involved in this area as opposed to letting Congress and the executive branch figure it out. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, uh, is, is in, and for your thoughts, because this seemed to be something that really the court's kind of more liberal wing seemed concerned about is like, is this an area that we should even get involved when, you know, sh should courts, you know, second guess the federal government on foreign policy decisions? And so I'm curious as to your thoughts, like, are we entering dangerous territory if they do that and continue to well, do that? I mean, you know, uh, that, that's 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 certainly my view. I mean, that was part of my view in, about the, the DACA case. That was part of my view here that 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 um, Congress has, in fact, given the executive branch a fair amount of discretion, and we have decades and decades and decades of Congress allowing the executive branch to to use that discretion, and that um, uh, you know, judicial aggressive judicial review in this context, you know, risks. Um, uh, tying the executive branch's hands in an area that does have uh, foreign policy and national security implications. So I'm sympathetic to that view. Um, and, I, you know, I sense it wasn't just the liberal justices, but I do think that Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett did seem to think that, or, you know, there were a lot of questions about, you know, how State Farm applies here, how this could, you know, to what extent should the court just be focused on whether there was receipt reason decision making, whether the executive branch is giving good enough reasons for its decisions um, within this broad statutory framework. And one reason to focus on that part of the case is to kind of cabin um, the extent to which courts are going to get involved, right? Don't overread the statute. Don't um, try and constrain the administration's hands. Rather, just require the executive branch to explain what it's doing and why it's doing it. And whether that would mean the Biden administration wins or merely that when the case goes back to the lower courts, the range of questions lower courts are looking at will be sufficiently narrowed so as to give the executive branch some degree of predictability about what it is they have to focus on. You know, I think that would be a way of of limiting um, the, the risk that, you know, federal immigration policy is for substantial periods of time. Uh, controlled by uh, uh, not so random district court judges who are uh, where cases are brought. And and I think, you know, because th that is part of the background here. Um, I should also note, it, it also relates to, the, I think, the, the, the broader concern on the court about nationwide injunctions more generally and whether this is the case where they're going to uh, 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 finally wrestle with that or, or, or another case. I'm not so sure, but I think the court is looking for a case where it can clarify, you know, how aggressive district courts really can be, uh, and this is one candidate for the court to do that. Right. So, uh, you know, 
your answer just now focused a lot on federal immigration policy. That's um, obviously very important, and it's really important in this case as well. I guess, though, administrative law touches on really every area of our lives, um, not just immigration law. So I'm wondering, you know, you've talked about how the justices could narrow it and kind of bring courts out of that, uh, the immigration context. Um, But will will it leak into other areas of the law, or is immigration just so different? Well, historically, it's been different. Um, you know, there, there are a handful of areas that historically were kind of um, codicils to regular administrative law and that, and that administrative law just operated differently. Now, the Supreme Court has made very clear in the last several years that it doesn't view tax differently for administrative law purposes. And I do think either that the court has sent a similar signal in in immigration law as well, that that you know, there is one Administrative Procedure Act, it applies across the board. Um, But I do think what the court does certainly will have implications. I think the DACA decision uh, has broader implications, um, particularly on this idea of having to consider reliance interests, even if the executive branch's view is that the policy it is rescinding was illegal, right, which had been the Trump administration's view of DACA. and I think that has uh, you know, implications for like you know wetlands regulation and and permitting of um, uh, energy projects and the like, right? Where the mere claim that it, that a permit was issued illegally apparently is not going to be enough to rescind it, for example. Hmm. Um, and so I do think um, what the court does here could have broader implications. I think if the court, you know, if I think what we get is a you know kind of a state farm oriented. Look, this is what the statute says. There is a requirement to detain. You are allowed to uh, send back to Mexico, but you are also allowed to release or parole um, under these kind of public benefit criteria. Um, And we just want a fulsome explanation from the agency. That would look like a fairly traditional administrative law opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's one that, at least in this context, the Biden administration could work with. Um, what I think would be much harder for the Biden administration would be if if the court was really aggressive in how in how narrowly it interpreted the statute or how strictly it interpreted the statute um, uh, and and focusing less on the administration's ability to engage in reasoned decision making insofar as it explains uh, its policy. Um, and so that's that's kind of what I, I that's what I that's what I'm expecting to look for in the opinion. But I came away from oral argument thinking that that there was a lot in play here, um, and and you know we'll, it, it'll really depend on what what direction they go in. Right. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us. Hope that gave listeners some kind of idea about what it is that the Supreme Court is wrestling with here, and kind of what we could see in the future. So thanks a lot for joining us. My pleasure. And then, Lydia, we have a couple more minutes. Um, I wanted to note, you know, this was the last week of oral arguments for the Supreme Court for its term, and that meant that it was also the last oral argument for Justice Stephen Breyer, who is stepping down this summer after 28 years on the bench. And we got um, a, a sort of tribute from the Chief Justice at the end of oral arguments. For 28 years, this has been his arena for remarks profound and moving, questions challenging and insightful, and hypotheticals downright silly. (laughs) 
this sitting alone has brought us radioactive muskrats and John the Tiger Man. For now, we leave the courtroom with deep appreciation for the privilege of sharing this bench with him. As I've been watching Breyer um, on the bench the last decade, something that certainly stuck out to me are these kind of wild hypotheticals that he comes up with in order to try and isolate, you know, the legal questions at issue. I wonder, is that what sticks out to you about Breyer as well? And, and if so, are there any real, any hypos that stuck out to you when you were covering the court? Totally. I mean, Breyer just loves the hypotheticals and really takes them quite far. Um, but, you know, I was trying to think of one. I mean, we've heard about the friendly robbers and I think there was crazed raccoons at one point. Um, but there's one that I distinctly remember. Um, this was back in like 2016 uh, that seemed to take a lot of court watchers by surprise. Um, so the case was actually about whether a bank um, must suffer actual monetary losses um, in order for someone to be charged with federal bank fraud. And Justice Breyer starts bringing up um, the then recent robbery of Kim Kardashian. Um, you remember probably like thieves broke into where she was staying, I guess, in Paris and tied her up and took all her jewelry. Um, and so Justice Breyer starts asking if all of Kim Kardashian's jewelry is insured. And then he starts guessing, like, even he says, even it's likely overinsured. But he asks, like, would it still be considered theft if she didn't actually lose any money from the robbery? And so like he and then he gives the scenario about her being robbed by like this friendly local jewelry cleaner. And so <laughs> so like it made me wonder if like maybe Justice Breyer gets down with a little E Entertainment News after dinner, you know, nothing wrong with with catching up on a little pop culture. Um, so, yeah, it's like. I I was really surprised he even knew who Kim Kardashian was. Um, Me too. <laughs> I wonder which one, his, which uh, Kardashian is his favorite. <laughs> I mean, clearly Kim, right? I mean, <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be. But, you know, what I love about Breyer, in addition to his hypotheticals, is he's never shy um, from express, or expressing when he's completely exasperated by a, a case or really confused. Um, you know, this happened in November. The court actually heard arguments in a challenge to a I think it was like 2005 rule that decreased the amount of additional Medicare payments that hospitals get um, when basically they treat uh, a higher number of poor patients. And the way that that payment is calculated is so complex and just involves um, percentages of Medicare patients and Medicaid patients. It's really hard to follow, like even just trying to explain it right now. I'm just yeah. like, I'm sure everybody's <laughs> eyes are crossed. But um, so Breyer during the argument was like, do I have this understood right? Because the chances I have this understood correctly are near zero. <laughs> and, you know, it just, it, it made us all laugh and was like a moment of brevity, you know, and then he tries to classify one group of the patients um, as saying that they've exhausted their benefits. And he goes, so these people are exhausted, just like me after reading this case. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. I think, though, my favorite is going to have to be um, from before I was actually covering the court um, uh, in 2005, when Justice Breyer was considering California's medical marijuana law and kind of the government's role in policing it. And he came up with this hypothetical of a farmer who grows heroin, cocaine, and tomatoes that have genomes that at some point are going to lead to tomato children that will eventually attack Boston, which I don't even know. <laughs> I, I don't even know. How do you get there? How does his mind go to tomato children who are, you know, city eating tomato children?
that man must have crazy dreams is all I'm thinking, you know, like, I wonder what it's like to spend one day in that brain, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I could handle it. Uh, Me either. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, We'll see what the court gives us uh, by way of opinions next week. And we'll let you know what we'll be talking about then. Until then, have a great weekend, everyone. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.